Hello and welcome to a horribly nerdy podcast, the podcast that's so bad, horrible is in its name. And on this podcast, we discuss everything I'm passionate about, like movies, comic books, the paranormal, and much more. Today, we're going to be talking about an entire universe of films. That's right. Today, we're discussing... An uncharted island. Let me list all the ways you're going to die. Rain, heat, disease-carrying flies. And we haven't started on the things that want to eat you alive. We'll double that. Plus a bonus if we make it back. If? In this dirty old part of the city Where the sun refused to shine Is that a monkey? live below us i call them skull crawlers why because it sounds neat okay look i just made that name up i'm trying to scare you i'm fine calling them that are you cool with that yeah that, that seems like a, i that like seems the name like a... Run! Legendary's Monsterverse. Our film opens as two World War II pilots crash land on a beach. One Japanese, one American. They're ready to fight to the death. They chase after one another and end on this ledge. As they are about to begin their final showdown, a gigantic hand lands on the ledge between them. And we cut to Vietnam era where a helicopter squadron is getting ready to go on furlough, but they have one last mission they must accomplish. They must fly some scientists who are doing some kind of seismographic experiments on a strange island that is reportedly not on any map. So, as our helicopter squadron fights through this gigantic storm cloud, and we end up on Skull Island. So, now they start dropping bombs, which have to do with the seismographic experiments. But guess what? These scientists aren't there for that. They actually work for Monarch, and one is trying to prove his Hollow Earth theory, while the other is trying to prove that giant monsters exist. 
as we find out giant monsters do in fact exist because out of nowhere a tree comes flying and smashes into a helicopter Kong is here and he is pissed you don't just come out of nowhere and start dropping bombs on his island he fights a bunch of he fights and knocks down a bunch of helicopters one of our crew lands safely and they run away and they are found by the native people and our American World War II pilot who has survived all this time. And he tells them, you all screwed up. Kong is king around here. Well, we've got Conrad, who is an ex-military British dude who is like a jungle expert. We have a war photographer. Uh, I believe her maiden name is Mason, played by uh, Brie Larson. She has something to prove. And as we find... There are also these gigantic beasts all over the island. There's these elk-like creatures that are gigantic. There's giant octopus. And there are something even more sinister on the island. Well, as Brie Larson is taking pictures of the island, she discovers one of the giant elk-like creatures is trapped beneath a helicopter. And she takes it upon herself to get underneath the helicopter and try to lift it off. As she's doing this, all of a sudden she thinks, oh, I'm lifting it, but no, it is Kong. Somehow, without her hearing, he has snuck up on her and has helped her lift this helicopter off this elk creature. The elk gets up and walks away and is fine. Kong kind of sees that maybe not all people are bad because the native people he gets along with even though they hide from him most of the time but we find that our buddy Kong likes some people but of course it's a woman and what does Kong like more than anything well he likes women we cut to the mad general played by Samuel L. Jackson in his quest for revenge against Kong for killing his men uh he sets a giant fire trap in this lake. Kong, of course, gets involved, and he is taken out. He's knocked to the ground. He is weak. He is dying. Well, he's not dying, but he is weak. And one thing we found out, his parents were killed by this gigantic creature called a skull crawler. While its offspring are running around, the little ones are running around eating everything they can, including some of their our, uh, helicopter squadron and some of the native people there. Once Kong is knocked down, the gigantic, the big one as they call it, senses this and crawls out of the lake and we get our badass epic giant monster fight as Kong and the scroll caller fight to the death. We, we cut across a few different landscapes. Kong even, uh, he gets trapped in chains, but once he realizes that uh, the skull crawler is going after the, 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 the woman, the pretty girl he seems to like, well, he rips off those chains. He sees a propeller from a ship that crash landed there, and he uses that propeller and chain as a weapon. He lodges it into the skull crawler. He picks up our... Uh, our heroine holding her in his hands. The skull crawler goes to swallow her whole, swallows Kong's fist, and what does Kong do? Rips out his tongue and his guts right out of his mouth. 
and we got ourselves a dead skull crawler. We then find ourselves with Conrad and Mason are in, they think they're being held because, you know, this shadowy government is trying to, you know, hide the fact that these monsters exist and they're like, okay, whatever, we get it, we're not going to say anything. Well then, uh, one of the young scientists they were on the island with comes out of nowhere and he's like, oh no, we just want to show you this. And what do we get? We get cave paintings of Godzilla, Mothra, Rodan, and King Ghidorah, leading us up to one of the sequels, Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Kong Skull Island, directed by Jordan Vogt-Roberts, starring Tom Hiddleston, Samuel L. Jackson, Brie Larson, John C. Riley, John Goodman, and more. Uh, Samuel L. Jackson said on a talk show that throughout filming, he and his co-stars just didn't know how big Kong was supposed to be. Whenever anyone asked, they all got conflicting answers. Director Jordan Vogt-Roberts admitted that he was strongly influenced by video games from his childhood. That is why the movie contains many point-of-view shots of guns being fired, like in a first-person shooting game. And the shot of a helicopter making a 360-degree spin towards the ground was inspired by a similar scene from a Resident Evil game. This is the second installment of the MonsterVerse following Godzilla, but a prequel to that and all other MonsterVerse films. Uh, Kong's design is inspired by a combination of King Kong from the 1933 film and the Japanese adaptation in the 1960s, a la God, uh, King Kong vs. Godzilla and King Kong Escapes. This allowed the creative team to utilize a look similar to the classic Kong while also drawing upon the exaggerated kaiju aspects and powers displayed by the Japanese adaptation, such as greatly exaggerated height, build strength, and possible supernatural abilities. Uh, this will allow a more even confrontation with Godzilla in the upcoming Godzilla vs. Kong film. The outfit worn by Bill Randa, played by John Goodman, replicates the outfit worn by Robert Armstrong as Carl Denham in the original 1933 King Kong film. The film takes place in 1973. At the beginning of the film, President Richard Nixon announces the end of the Vietnam War. This announcement occurred in January of 1973. The scenes with mountains, rivers, and grassy fields were mostly shot in Vietnam, including Ninh Binh and Quang Binh. Jordan Vogt Roberts and the cast members said they were the most beautiful places they've ever been. According to Jordan Vogt Roberts, the first draft of the screenplay had the action taking place in 1917 and was an entirely different film. Although he liked the script, he didn't think it was something he wanted to make. When he asked what kind of monster movie he had in mind, he suggested to have it take place in the Vietnam War era as sort of an apocalypse now with monsters, since there had never been a monster movie set in that time. He also saw interesting, he also saw interesting parallels between the political turmoil and racial riots from the 1970s and the 2010s. Contrary to his expectation, the studio loved the idea and the script was reworked from there. Originally, the movie was over three hours long. However, it was cut down to one hour and 58 minutes in length. All of the elements of the movie's extended plot that didn't make it into the final cut can be found within the movie's novelization. They include James Conrad's, played by Tom Hiddleston's, encounter with a giant snake and an extended fight sequence between Marlowe and Gunpie. 
the uh, World War II American and Japanese pilots. Uh, Brie Larson also doubles as one of the natives on Skull Island. She greets the survivors with a spear. The copyrights of the Kong franchise are a bit complicated. Uh, the novelization of King Kong is now in public domain. Uh, one small difference between the movie and the novelization is the name of Captain Anglehorn's ship. In the movie, it is the Venture, although in the novel, it is the Wanderer. The rusted hull of the Wanderer in this movie is a nod to the original novel. The scene in where Kong fights a giant octopus is an homage to King Kong vs. Godzilla, in which Kong's first fight is that of a giant octopus. Uh, after the fight, Kong eats the octopus, a possible homage to special effects director E.G. Suburaya taking and eating the octopus after filming King Kong vs. Godzilla in 1963. Uh, many ideas were suggested for the post credit scene in order to tie the film to the Godzilla and future movies in the MonsterVerse. Uh, one idea was to have the characters see Godzilla surface in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. However, director Jordan Vogt Roberts vetoed the idea because this would violate the notion from Godzilla that Godzilla was hardly ever seen before that time. It also would have required an enormous amount of that budget he preferred to spend on the rest of the film. So he pitched the idea of the conference room with the projector as it appears in the end of the movie. Kong is similar to Godzilla from the 2014 film in several ways. Both are the last of their kind. Both have a vendetta against their natural enemies, Kong against the Skullcrawlers and Godzilla against the Mutos, who have killed the rest of their species, and both are portrayed as morally neutral alpha predators who maintain order and have no personal quarrel with humans. However, while Godzilla ignores humans and pays them no heed, except for when he sees Ford Brody and shows emotion when they make eye contact, Kong recognizes and forms relationships with individual humans either as friends or as enemies. Also, while Godzilla is an adult, Kong is an adolescent still growing and still learning. Uh, in September 2015, Legendary Pictures decided to move this movie from Universal Pictures to Warner Brothers because Universal didn't want anything to do with the Godzilla franchise nor the MonsterVerse franchise, but Legendary had plans of its own. Uh, Kong seems to show a great deal of loneliness as a result of him losing his parents to the Skullcrawlers at a very young age. His eyes well up with tears when Mason Weaver, played by Brie Larson, gently touches him, and one of the cave paintings depict him crouching and mourning over the remains of his deceased parents. The producers intentionally designed Kong to have a personality similar to a teenager orphaned early and forced to assume adult responsibilities, being not yet fully grown but left to defend for himself. Director Jordan Vogt Roberts wanted to give the audience insight into Kong's state of mind, him being a lonely and exhausted god lumbering around the island, being its protector, but also killing time as he drags himself from place to place. Uh, Terry Notary played Kong as a lonely, burdened 14-year-old that's trapped in the life of an adult, who's coming into himself as a role of a protector driven to uphold his sense of duty, duty by the burden of the loss of his family. Uh, director Jordan Vogt Roberts also described Kong as an adolescent growing into his role as Alpha as he faces the defining battle of his life to claim his rightful place as King of Skull Island. So, Kong Skull Island, it's a fun film. Um, 
it's certainly, you know, chronologically, it's the first film where the actual first film of the MonsterVerse series is Gareth Edwards' Godzilla. Uh, Kong Skull Island is, it's a lot of fun, you know, compared to the, uh, God, the film that came before Godzilla. Godzilla isn't on screen much at all. Like, they kind of, they... They kind of went an homage to the original 1954, where Godzilla only has about 10 minutes of screen time, and they did that with, you know, the 2014 film as well, which, okay, I, I can see why it did that, but to me, Kong Skull Island is a much funner film, and even the, all the other films in the MonsterVerse universe are more of a fun films compared to, you know, that original, uh, well, original compared to the 2014 Godzilla. Because in, you know, in Skull Island, you've got all kinds of creatures that come out of nowhere. You've got like weird action scenes where uh, Tom Hiddleston has a sword and a gas mask and he fights like these flying terror, terror birds or some crazy shit. You got the mini scroll crawlers that come out of nowhere and attack everyone. Like, it's just, it's just fun. There's all kinds of campy monster mayhem. Well, I shouldn't even say campy, because it's not campy. It's just fun. It's like, okay, cool. We have all these monsters. We get to see these creature designs more and more. And it's just, it's a super, super cool film. And uh, it's definitely a lot of fun. It's, you know, it's really going, you know, from like the somber and, and super serious tone of the 2014 Godzilla film to like just this okay here we go action adventure crazy monster just badass film um you know and it just it's super fun i've said it's fun like a billion times but it's all i can say it's just it's a fun film to watch uh and experience over and over and over i i can't you know i can't get enough of it i think they did a really really good job um kind of keeping the Kong mythology still there, um, instead, but you know, instead of having like the natives have to sacrifice a woman, they're just you know, they, they don't really do that, but the natives are friendly this time, and uh, uh, you know, we kind of we get a we get a background of like there's there's been this Kong species around for you know for billion or millions of years pretty much and we find out like we start to learn that these monsters were the ones that ruled the world and then when you know they fed off the new uh, the radiation of the olden times and then when the climate started changing they went into this crazy hollow earth and started to live down there but then wars between all these monsters started to break out we get a little bit of mythology on that like there's a kong skull crawler war uh, and that's how, you know, Kong's parents were killed by the giant skull crawler. And Kong has always been seeking revenge on that. But he's still, in this one, he's like, just like a teenager, basically. He's an adolescent. He's not fully grown, which is, you know, why when it eventually leads to uh, the, one of the sequels, to be able to match up against Godzilla, they make sure to throw that in there. Like, no, no, no. Kong's still young at this point. He's still growing. He's not ready... You know, he's not fully grown at this point. So, you know, uh, lots of fun to be had. Craziness. Uh, I definitely give it... Uh, I'll give it four and a half skull crawlers out of five. Kong Skull Island. Definitely check it out.
before that, chronologically, Kong Skull Island takes place in the 70s. I want to talk to somebody in charge. You are not fooling anybody when you say that what happened was a natural disaster. You're lying. It was not an earthquake. It wasn't a typhoon. Because what's really happening is that you're hiding something out there. And it is going to send us back to the Stone Age. In 1954, we awakened something. Well, there's nuclear tests in the Pacific. Not tests. They were trying to kill it. You have no idea what's coming. Godzilla, directed by Gareth Edwards. We follow the Brody family as they live in Japan right near a nuclear power plant. An accident causes an explosion. They must evacuate, but yet Brody's, Brody and his father are able to escape, but his mother is not. We cut two years later where we find that Ford Brody is in the military and he has come home and he's visiting his wife and his young son. We gets a phone call where we find out his father has once again broken into the quarantine zone and he must fly to Japan to bail him out. As they are, as he bails him out, they are talking and he keeps telling his dad, you know, you gotta stop this, it was years ago. You know, mom's gone, there's nothing that can bring her back. And uh, he tell you know his he says you know you got a you got a grandson who wants to see his grandpa why don't you move back to California with me yada 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 so he he says okay fine but can he wants to go one last time because he doesn't even have a picture of his family or his wife so his father and son break into the quarantine zone and they get caught. 
once again. But they find something interesting. They find local wildlife has been able to survive all this time. So how is it that this supposed nuclear accident has happened, but yet the wildlife isn't dead? They haven't suffered any radiation poisoning, nothing like that. Well, that's because a gigantic creature has burrowed itself underneath the nuclear reactor and is feeding off the radiation. That is what his father has uncovered. So, guess what? Sleepy time's over. The gigantic creature that they call a MUTO, massive unidentified terrestrial organism, has awakened. And we see Brody's father on the scaffold as the monster starts to climb out and, well, a terrible accident ensues. His father is gravely injured, doesn't survive, and now we follow uh, Sergeant Brody around as he just so happens to constantly run into these MUTOs and Godzilla. So they decide now that these MUTOs are out and about and they find out that they are attracted to radiation, that there is a male and a female and they have bred and they are about to lay, the female is about to lay an egg sac that could hatch hundreds, maybe even thousands of these MUTOs that could even then reproduce even more and more and more and could overrun our planet. So they decide to uh, attract them with these nuclear weapons and they hope that they're going to blow them up and kill them. Well, while Brody is trying to go home, uh, he's flying out of Hawaii to go home, well, the male MUTO finds the nuclear weapon and we get a uh, MUTO versus military action scene. It's actually pretty decent, uh, but we cut to a beach where we see a dog losing its absolute mind and a young lady, a young, uh, young girl, not a young lady, a young girl walks to the water's edge, but there's no water there. The water is retreating. A tsunami is about to form. How did this tsunami form? Well, all of a sudden we cut back to this airport that Brody's at. Uh, a young boy who was distracted by an action figure he was playing with uh, ends up left by his parents and he says, oh, you know, don't worry, I'll bring him around, blah, blah, blah. But while they're on the tram to come around, the MUTO breaks through the track, attacks the... <coughs> Excuse me. The, young, the MUTO breaks through the track, attacks the train, and all of a sudden an explosion happens out and we cut to the uh, inner of the airport at the windows and all everyone's screaming for terror and all of a sudden a gigantic foot comes out of nowhere and you hear pure silence and we get our first look ever at our big guy Godzilla we, we haven't seen in years because uh, the final film, well actually in 2005 Toho did their final film, Godzilla Final Wars, and decided to take a break from the Godzilla films. And then in 2014, uh, Legendary acquired the rights to a trilogy of Godzilla films, and eventually Kong was brought into, uh, into that universe to fight. 
and we get our MonsterVerse universe. What the fuck am I trying to say? Uh, so, yeah, but then as soon as we see Godzilla, we're thinking, all right, epic monster fight. Nope. Cuts to a TV screen where uh, the Brody family is watching the news. Uh, his wife, whose name I can't remember... <laughs> is on the phone trying to find out information about uh, her husband and all of a sudden she looks at the TV and she just hears her son go look mommy dinosaurs and she drops the phone in pure terror because now the American public and the world has figured out monsters exist so then we get more military action uh, we get Brody running into the Motos even more because he retrofitted the nuclear bomb and now they have it so he has to go in and uh, set it off and they finally land in San Francisco we get our giant monsters Godzilla appears well actually yes Godzilla appears and we get a fight between the male and the female and Godzilla so we find the bomb it's in the middle of the nest so that way the all the baby mutos can feed off the radiation uh the military finds the bomb they you know they they remove it from its perch because it's like melded in with the nest so they cut it out they see these thousands of egg sacs with the baby mutos inside and then we get uh, a scene where Brody is on it, you know, all they care about is killing the male and the female. They're not worried about the nest. Well, he takes it upon himself because just so happens a gas tanker is right by the uh, nest. He empties the gasoline all in there, lights it on fire, and burns our Muto nest. The female sees this, loses her mind, and goes to save her babies. While Brody has been launched in the explosion, he is pretty much resting against a uh, Oh yes, uh, Brody has been injured in the explosion. He's resting there. Godzilla falls. He has been bested. He's been knocked down. They both kind of look at each other, kind of give like a recognition like, oh boy, we're both fucked. The mother runs over to find that the nest has been destroyed. Brody accidentally moves and knocks a piece of concrete over. And the female then sees Brody. Knowing that he has, somehow knowing that he is the one that destroyed her nest, she's ready to kill him. But we see this blue light come out of nowhere. What is this blue light? Well, it's Godzilla ready to fire his atomic breath. And we get ourselves the first look of the atomic breath. But it has been severely weakened because the Mutos have a natural EMP defense and they are able to weaken his atomic breath, but it still does the trick. Uh, Brody is able to get to the boat where, they, where the military has put the bomb, but then the female comes out of nowhere, eats the military, and Brody is the only one left. He starts the boat, guides it out of there. Uh, he's getting ready to leave when all of a sudden he looks up 
and the female is leaning in, ready to eat him, when out of nowhere, she stops out of nowhere. Why? Because Godzilla has bit onto her shoulder, he tears open her mouth, and he breathes his fire breath right down her throat and decapitates her in one of the best fucking ending fatalities I've ever seen on film. So then, Brody, uh, after that, we see Brody drift off into sea with the nuclear bomb, and we see Godzilla collapse out of pure exhaustion. It looks like he's dead. All of a sudden, a helicopter uh, crew comes out of nowhere. They pick up Brody. They fly him to the mainland. Luckily, somehow the bomb has drifted enough. There's been enough time. Even though there's been only like two minutes on the counter, uh, he, there's been enough time for the boat to drift away to a safe distance for the nuclear bomb to go off and San Francisco is saved. We then cut to Dr. Sarazawa, who is looking at the corpse of Godzilla, or at least what we think is the corpse of Godzilla, because he's a character I completely forgot to mention that is in this film. Yes, he is portraying a role from the original Godzilla 1954, Dr. Sarazawa, though they're not canon from the original film, but an homage to that character. Where he works for Monarch, he believes Godzilla is a balance. He kind of, all these Mutos bow down to him. And so, or I'm sorry, well, they call them Mutos right now, but they change that in the future. But anyways, uh, he believes that with Godzilla as an alpha, Godzilla's presence usually keeps all the uh, other giant monsters uh, uh, docile. And then, uh, so we get this badass scene where Godzilla, you know, right before the battle in San Francisco, he's talking to the head colonel and he's like, you know, doctor, what do we do, you know, about these monsters? And he says, Godzilla will bring balance. Let them fight. And of course, that's because we need our giant monster battle, which we had and it had some fucking awesome scenes. Then we finally end with, out of nowhere, Godzilla's eyes open, he breathes, he gets up, where we cut back to seeing Brody at the, uh, with his family. They hear cheering, they look up, everyone's cheering because Godzilla has saved the day, and we see the little text screen for the news says, King of the Monsters, question mark, and that's our film. Godzilla 2014 is directed by Gareth Edwards and stars Aaron Taylor Johnson, Elizabeth Olsen, Brian Cranston, and Ken Watanabe. Uh, Godzilla is covered in keloid scars, raised thick patches of skin. The original Godzilla was heavily scarred to evoke the gruesome marks borne by the survivors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Uh, the sound designers used a 12-foot high, 18-foot wide speaker array to blast Godzilla's roar at, at 100,000 watts to get a good idea of his vocal power and strength. Uh, Gareth Edwards described Godzilla as an anti-hero. Godzilla is definitely a representation of the wrath of nature. The theme is man versus nature, and Godzilla is certainly the nature side of it. You can't win that fight. Nature's always going to win, and that's what the subtext of our movie is about. He's the punishment we deserve. 
Gareth Edwards and the design group reviewed all the previous incarnations of Godzilla's design for inspiration on the final design. Uh, the way I tried to view it was, imagine Godzilla was a real creature, and someone from Toho saw him in the 1950s and ran back to the studio to make a movie about the creature and was trying his best to remember and draw it, and in our film you get to see him for real. It was important that this felt like a Toho Godzilla. Uh, Toho Studios provided, provided sound designer Eric Etahal with the original 1954 recording of Godzilla's roar. He upgraded the roar to a more organic and contemporary sound. Uh, Godzilla was originally planned to be found preserved in a Siberian glacier, but this was changed when filmmakers saw that the Man of Steel from 2013 had a very similar scene. Uh, Dr. Ishiro Serizawa was named after Ishiro Honda, director of Godzilla, and Dr. Daisuke Serizawa, one of its main characters, played by Ken Watanabe in this film. Uh, despite being the title character, Godzilla appears in the film after nearly one hour and is only in the film for a total of 11 minutes. Uh, the movie takes many plot elements with Terry... Res the film takes many plot elements with Terry Rossio and Ted Elliott's script for a 1994 American version, which unfortunately never got made. An opening segment set in the past during which one of the main, main characters' parents is killed. Then the story jumps ahead to the present time to show the surviving parent obsessed with solving the previous mysterious event. Uh, Godzilla travels to San Francisco, destroying the Golden Gate Bridge. Ancient enemies are reawakened. Godzilla battles a flying monster, which he hunts to kill. Uh, Godzilla bros his blows his atomic breath into an enemy monster, decapitating it. They all end with Godzilla returning to the sea. Uh, according to Gareth Edwards, Godzilla was inspired by the last samurai. He's an ancient warrior who's the last of his kind, and his kind has long since died out. He lives a very solitary, lonely existence, and he's very happy to keep away from everyone. But we, but he keeps doing, but we keep doing things to force him to return and put things right. Originally, Dr. Zara was to introduce the titular monster as Godzilla, but Ken Watanabe asked the filmmakers if he could use the original Japanese name of Gojira, which they allowed him to do. Um, according to Dr. Serizawa, Godzilla first appeared in 1954, the same year as the original film. The original trailer has sequences that were different from the final film. For example, the shot of the shelter doors closing while Godzilla fights the flying monster showed only Godzilla in the trailer. This was purposely done to distract and confuse audiences from revealing too much. Uh, Haru Nakajima, who portrayed Godzilla in the suit for the original Godzilla film, stated that he immensely enjoyed this film. Uh, in the opening scene, Ken Watanabe is dressed as... Special effects director Eiji Tsuburaya. Uh, when he worked at Toho, Tsuburaya wore a hat, glasses, and suit jacket every day. Of course, this was an homage to the great special effects director. Uh, the movie happened to be so successful that two sequels were greenlit only two days after the premiere of the film. 
Uh, originally, King Ghidorah was the antagonist in an early draft of the script, having crashed in the Arctic during the last Ice Age, being kept frozen in the Yucca Mountain Nuclear Waste Depository, a cover by Monarch, before escaping and fighting Godzilla in San Francisco. He was removed by Gareth Edwards, who felt that Ghidorah, being an extraterrestrial, did not fill, fit the film's Wrath of Nature theme and wanted to avoid similarities with the popular alien film Transformers. Um, Ghidorah did, however, appear in the sequel. At the premiere of the film, some Toho executives and staff members were said to have broken down in joy at the portrayal of their property, Godzilla, in the film, which they were extremely upset by the original 1998 original Godzilla. The film originated from a proposed Godzilla film project by Yoshimitsu Mano, director of 1971's Godzilla vs. Hedorah, which we recently talked about. Uh, tentatively titled Godzilla 3D to the Max, an IMAX film. In 2005, just a few months after the release of Godzilla Final War, Bano obtained the rights from Toho to do a new Godzilla film at his Japan-based studio, Advanced Audio Visual Productions and 3D IMAX exclusively for the American public. Toho would act as both technical advisors and distributors for the film in Japan. In it, Godzilla would battle a poisonous, shape-shifting monster called Deathala, a monster similar to Hedorah, only red and purple in color, and a skull head, which awakened from his slumber in the Iguazu Falls between Brazil and Argentina. This battle between the two monsters progressively makes its way from Mexico City and finally Las Vegas. The story was over the top, partly to appeal to younger viewers, and was very strongly along the lines of Bano's Smog Monster. To produce this film, Bano spent a few years searching for financiers to fund the film, which would be co-produced by Kenji Ogihara and Brian Rogers. If made, veteran special effects director Aiji Asada would have handled the effects. Eventually, in 2010, Bano struck a deal with Legendary Pictures, who took the project in a completely different direction, with Toho maintaining the same condition as before, technical advisors and distribute in Japan. As a result, both Bano and Okihara ultimately became the executive producer of this film, with Rogers also as a producer. It's also said that when Godzilla vs. Smog Monster came out in the, originally in, 19, in the 1970s, an executive from Toho Studios was so upset by the film, he claimed that Bano had forever completely ruined the Godzilla franchise. Joke's on him because Bano has produced this film and it has been a major success. Uh, the first and last human characters seen in the film and at the end of the film are the same, Dr. Sarazawa and Graham. Uh, when Dr. Sarazawa is showing photographs from the hunt for Godzilla in 1954, a picture of the world's first nuclear-powered submarine, the Nautilus, was shown. The Nautilus is also the iconic needle-nosed submarine from Jules Verne classic tale, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Toho, the studio that released Godzilla, released a film called Atragon in 1963 that featured a titular submarine that drew heavy influence from the design of the Nautilus. Atragon was supposed to make an appearance in the MonsterVerse, but it never happened. While visualizing the Halo skydiving sequence, Gregory Leggetti's Requiem played on Gareth Edwards' iPod. He felt the music fit so well, he ended up putting it in the final film. 
Despite heavy marketing featuring him, Brian Cranston has less than 30 minutes of screen time. And like I said during the synopsis, I feel this was just a complete waste of Brian Cranston. I wish they wouldn't have killed him off. Based on the medieval RFC monsters shown in the prologue, it is implied that this individual Godzilla has been alive for at least several centuries, and the sea monsters spoken of myth and legend were in fact sightings of Godzilla himself. In spite of being called a predator of the Muto Godzilla, he never eats them. Uh, he only catches and kills them. It is likely they are just simply rival species who Godzilla actively hunts and destroys as they pose a threat to the existence of his species. The song that plays when Sarazawa sees Godzilla's dorsal spins protruding from the ocean and heading straight towards him and when the soldiers shoot at Godzilla as he walks by is in actuality an update of Godzilla's theme song from Godzilla vs. Hedorah. It's also a very similar scene to the 1998 Godzilla film when he first emerges from the ocean to an old fisherman in New York. Godzilla's first appearance on screen, a pan up from, a, from his feet to his head, is how he first appeared in my favorite Godzilla movie of all time, Godzilla 1985, which we're going to be discussing in a few weeks. Uh, Brian Cranston had to wear a wig for his scenes due to him just finishing the Breaking Bad series days before filming this movie. Cranston was initially all ready to decline the offer after being approached assuming this film was just going to be a parody or super silly. However, after talking to Gareth Edwards, the director, his passion for the film and his previous film Monsters impressed Cranston enough to read the script and join onto the film. Despite his positive opinion on the film, Cranston would later opine that killing off Joe Brody early was a narrative mistake, and I agree with that 1 million percent. The Godzilla roar was revamped for the movie. According to Gareth Edwards, sound designer Eric Adahall improved on the original sound effect provided by Toho. Adahall and fellow sound designer Ethan Vanderrein spent six months over the three-year production getting the roar right. Using microphones that could record sound inaudible to humans, the team found sounds to match the initial shriek and the finishing bellow. The new roar retains the musical key and cadence of the roar, going from a C to a D. The final version was the 50th the team produced. The pair tested the roar on a back lot at Warner Brothers using a tour speaker array for the Rolling Stones and estimated that it could be heard three miles away. In IMAX theater, the roar was integrated into the sound of the Welcome to IMAX sequence shown before all the Godzilla showings. Gareth Edwards, 2014 Godzilla. Um, it's, it's a good film. Um, you know, for... For the very first film in the MonsterVerse series, you know, we originally just, like, when it was announced, we weren't even sure if there was, you know, we supposedly there was going to be a trilogy of Godzilla films, and uh, they might use some of the Toho monsters, and I think it's cool that they brought in original monsters for this film to kind of, like, build up the mythology. My big, it, it just, it takes itself little too seriously, and... Uh, even the, like the, the screenwriter was like, you know, how does, it's interesting that the, this character keeps ending up, you know, with the monsters. Like, I feel like I'm writing Jaws and he's like, oh, well, let's just make it an homage to Jaws and call them the Brodies. So 
you know, it's like, okay, that's cool concept, but, and, and I was super excited for this film, and I don't hate this film, it's just, out of the MonsterVerse, I think it's my least favorite. Um, when I first saw it, I was super excited because, I, me being a, a Godzilla fan and just a kaiju fan in general, I was pumped, I was hyped for this film. I, you know, every trailer, I just, you know, I'd watch it over and over, break it down, slow it down. Oh, is that a new monster? Oh, what do we see here? What do we see there? Oh, we haven't really seen Godzilla yet. Show us Godzilla. And, you know, compared to the 98 film where we didn't see Godzilla until opening day. And let's, we're not even going to talk about that fiasco right now. But they, you know, they had no problem showing us Godzilla in the trailer. And he looks great. Uh, his dorsal fins are, are, are you know, not normal. They're, they're spiky. I do like the fact that we kind of get them retooled in the later films and they, you know, and they actually explain why that happens. But, you know, setting up the characters of like Dr. Sarazawa and Monarch, it's a decent film, you know, that this Monarch uh, shadowy government exists. They know about these monsters. They're studying these monsters and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, we get these Mutos that uh, feed off of radiation, much like Godzilla does. But uh, they also, like, they're able to reproduce rapidly and at an extreme rate and are and, and able to lay thousands of eggs, which could produce even more of these MUTOs, which then themselves are able to reproduce. And so it's cool we get all that, you know, we get all kinds of, like, cool stuff like that and interesting. I just, I wish we had focused less on the human characters and what I really hate and I didn't mention this during the synopsis but Brian Cranston plays Joe Brody plays uh, uh, Sergeant Brody's father and I feel like he's completely wasted in this film like he could have like he ends up finding these weird he you know he's when it comes to the like he, he finds like these weird signals and stuff and that's when he finds out like uh and that's why he keeps going back to the the quarantine zone because he's trying to figure out where these signals are coming from and all that and that's when they discover like uh that there's two mutos both of them are still alive even though one from vegas was supposedly vivisected which means it's been completely like dissected and shit so i don't know how it's still alive i think they might have screwed up in the writing a little bit on that one but or maybe he didn't necessarily vivisect it. Maybe he just inspected it and said he vivisected it. Who knows? But then, you know, these Muto, you know, he, he comes across this signal and finds out that these Muto, you know, the, the male and the female have been communicating with each other. They're alive. They're alive. They're, they're ready to meet. They're ready to mate. And, uh, and you know, that's what causes uh, the male to finally come out of his cocoon and ends up, unfortunately, with Joe Brody being killed. Um... And I, I feel like what you could have did with that, instead of having him injured on the, uh, the, 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 the scaffolding and all that stuff, what you could have done was made Joe Brody a monarch scientist. Like, he could have been a radiologist or something like that, which, you know, maybe they can help track Godzilla and these MUTOs. I just really feel like... Having him, like having the film focus a, a good portion on his character and then just immediately kill him off by the time the second act is ready to go around, I feel like it's a complete waste of Brian Cranston's talent. Um, 
I would have loved to have seen him survive. I would have loved him to see Mon, you know, him join Monarch and and shown up in the in the sequels. But you know, they they went a whole different direction. It's not what I would have done, but whatever. Uh, I I still enjoy the film. I won't I won't watch it as much as I watch the others. I, I again, it's my least favorite out of the MonsterVerse series. I, I, I do like it, and like I said, when it, when it came out at the time, I was so ready for it. I was so pumped. I love, you know, I love the movie, and I don't, I don't hate the movie. I do like it. I'm not in love with it as, it, as I was when I first saw it. Uh, when I first saw it, I would have gave it a five out of five. I would have watched, you know, I watched it like six, seven times a week. I was all for it because, you know, we hadn't had a Godzilla movie in years, even though Toho did do a. Uh, two years later after uh, this film, they did their own Shin Godzilla, which is pretty cool, and we'll be discussing that one very soon. Um, but, you know, we hadn't had a Godzilla movie in, God, like 10 years. So I was pumped. I was ready for a Godzilla film. And, you know, I, I enjoyed the film. I do still enjoy it. Um, the more and more, like, when I watch it now and I see, like, the universe, it's that they've built up around it, I can kind I can kind of pick at it and start to see like ah, it's just it's just ah, they they could have did this they could have did that and that you know that sucks I, I really I wish I wish more could have been done but all all in all it's still a good solid film uh, for Gareth Edwards like for him being like his first major film he did uh, uh, one of the reasons he kind of. Uh, landed on uh, Legendary's radar was because he did an indie film, like his own film called Monsters, which is about this alien race that is landed on Earth, and there are these giant monsters that are roaming the Earth, but they're not necessarily. They've taken over like a certain area of Earth, and they're not necessarily bad aliens. They're just there. They're kind of like that chaotic neutral kind of thing. But anyways. It, it's it's a decent film. Uh, I can see where like they put his trust in it and 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 for him to helm you know this Godzilla film and he does a good job with it. I think the screenwriting helps out quite a bit. Um, and uh, you know there's obviously that homage to Jaws with the Brody family and all that. I just I really uh, I wish that honestly I think I wish that they'd kind of remake it now. Uh, I, I don't know if the MonsterVerse series is done because they, they did their their four films. You know, the, the contract with Toho supposedly is up about with Godzilla, so I don't know if we're going to get any more films. If, if, if Kong is going to lead the MonsterVerse now, I have no idea. Um, I'm hoping we do get more. I would love to see this film kind of redone or retold in a different way. But uh, all in all, it's a decent film. I'm going to give it... I'll give it three Mutos out of five. Uh, I feel like there could have, you could have done more with what you were given. And I, and I'm not going to say you screwed the pooch, but I feel like you just maybe were, you know, him being like a, this maybe being his first major film, he was a little timid maybe, but, uh, I feel like see but again that's just me because if I was offered the chance I would have gone balls to the walls just absolutely crazy but differing opinions you know he he did the film he wanted to do and I respect him for that and I'm not going to take take that away from him I'm not a filmmaker he you know he he did what he had to do he went out and he made a film I wish I could do that 
Uh, I'd love to do that. That was originally what I wanted to do in my career was become a, a writer-director, but unfortunately that didn't pan out. Um, I have tons of ideas for stories. I just I, I can't get the funding to do it, or nor can I figure out how to make a film. I'm rambling on. Uh, Godzilla, three mutos out of five. Check it out. Let me know what you think. Next week, the King of the Monsters proves he truly is king as he goes against two false kings. The Monsterverse saga continues.